This morning's sermon comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. The title of this message is simply Pergamum. I'm going to go ahead and read our passage this morning to give us a frame of reference, and then we'll begin. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning through the preaching of your word, and I pray that you would be with me, Lord, and give me mercy as I attempt to expose what you have inspired here, your authors to write, and I pray that uh, I do it faithfully and without error, Lord. And Father, I pray that we would hear these words not just as a comfort or an encouragement, but also as a warning, Lord. A warning to the church, a warning to individuals, uh, but hopeful, knowing that if we persevere, we too might taste of the hidden manna and receive a white stone with a new name written upon it. Lord, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The piercing words of Jesus. Now this next discourse that John writes, or that John records, I should say, is to the church at Pergamum. Now in this section, we see that the angel identifies Jesus as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now we've talked about this before and what that means, but just as a reminder... The words of Christ penetrate deep and have the ability to both save and condemn. Often the word of God is considered to be a double-edged sword, and that's what it means. Um, oftentimes we also describe it as it has both, uh, both positive and negative connotations. Um, but the, the, the simplest meaning is that a double-edged sword penetrates deep because it cuts on both sides, through bone and through marrow. His words to the church of Pergamum are both encouraging and difficult. And I would say this morning that those words to us are both encouraging but also difficult. Pergamum was the northernmost city of our seven churches and was a sight to behold. It was affluent. It was very rich. There was a lot of money entering and exiting from Pergamum. It was filled with commerce and scientific advancement. It had, a, it had substantial architecture and business activity. And it made advancements in medicine that still form a foundation to medicine today. It was also a bustling religious center with multiple temples to pagan gods, including Zeus. Now that is nothing new. We see that in many of the cities in that general area. And so as in other cities, commerce and business were strictly associated with religious activities. So to reject the majority religion would in some sense hamper your ability to function in society. And oftentimes Christians in these cities were persecuted and maligned in part because their activities and their beliefs were kind of stifling commerce. And so if you believe that the culture of the day and the way that business was being appropriated was sinful and wrong, and if you refused to participate in the marketplace, it would, it would mess the flow up. It would mess the way things work. And oftentimes people don't like getting messed with 
especially in their pocketbook. And so oftentimes Christians... were persecuted and maligned. Now, temple worship, as with emperor worship, would have been the norm. Food sacrificed to idols would have been common, as were sexual acts tied to religious experiences and possibly even being tied to similar behaviors as temple prostitution. Now, what is that? Uh, If you haven't heard of this before, temple prostitution was very common in this day. And basically what it was, was that you would have individuals, didn't matter if it was a man or a woman, that would reside in uh, these temples, either to Aphrodite or to Zeus or some other individual, and you would, you would go in, especially if you were desiring fertility, physical, bodily fertility, or if you wanted your crops to grow well, you would go into these temples and you would, how shall I say, participate with the temple prostitute. And it did not matter if it was man or male or female. It didn't matter if you were a male or female. That's what you did because they believed that those actions would then produce fruit. And so those are some of the things that were happening in the city. Now what we're going to see in this letter is that the majority of the Christians were faithful, even unto death, in maintaining their allegiance to Christ. They didn't falter. They kept the faith all the way to the end under this extreme pressure. But at the same time, there were those who were associated with the church, possibly being even members of the church, who fell prey to these activities. They were willing to participate in the debauchery found in this city. As a church, we should be very careful not to accommodate sin and false teaching for the sake of inclusion, popularity, or even growth. Because a few bad apples, even one, can ruin the whole bunch. Now, this is a warning for churches. And you might say, well, we don't have that today. We, we don't have these temples around us in, in the United States where we would go to and participate. We don't have you know, temple prostitution. That's not a thing uh, here. That's not a thing here in the United States. And, and for the most part, you would be right. But we got to think beyond that we got to think about in our day, in our time, in our context, what are those things that, the, that society, that our culture, that the world would promote, all right, would celebrate, and in some ways demand of its citizens that as Christians, as part of the church of Jesus Christ, we cannot uh, accommodate We cannot participate in that. What are those things? And folks, there are those things. There are those things that we could participate in as Christians that would defame the name of Jesus. And we're going to talk about a few of those. We're going to keep it somewhat general. And then what ends up happening is that if you have a church that for the most part is faithful, but you have some of these individuals within the, the, the confines of the church membership or associated with the church that are participating in worldly activities, it can ruin the church. It can bring the church to its knees, and I don't mean that in a worshipful state. It can actually, that church might even lose its lampstand, lose its place as a church. It's hap- it happens every day. It happens every day. So let's dive in here. Holding fast to Jesus. The the commendation in this discourse to Pergamum is pretty easy to understand. John writes this in 2.13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. This phrase, where Satan's throne is, or where Satan dwells, is meant to be sort of symbolic. It's apocalyptic language, if you will, all right? But what it implies is this emperor or temple worship, or this polytheistic worship that was so common in these cities, in these Greek-controlled cities. And the, the symbolic language is that this is where the throne of Satan is. It's this idea that if you are not worshiping Christ... If, you're not, if your worship is not spirit-filled, spirit-led, and 
oriented towards Christ Jesus, then you are worshiping something else, something not of Christ, something demonic, something satanic, if you will. There is only one God, folks. There are not multiple gods. During this time, if you worship multiple gods, you were, that was the norm during this time. All right, But what the Bible says is that if you were worshiping anything other than God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, then you are worshiping something other than what is biblical. It's the throne of Satan. And many of these cities had this. In addition... As with other churches in the area, denial of emperor as the of the emperor as divine or emperor worship would lead to great persecution. Now, this just wasn't one emperor; it was consistent along the lines of Greek and Roman, uh, if you will, uh, theology or religiosity. Is that the emperor had divine qualities? Now, you might seem say that this is old hat. It's not old hat. This is present today in certain nations where the monarch is not just a monarch or a king or a queen, but that monarch actually holds divine qualities, or at least that's what is believed by the people, that there are divine qualities in this individual. And so this denial that the Christians, if they denied the emperor worship, it might simply be by rejecting food, sacrifice to idols, to the rejection of certain religious activities, both nominal or perverse. And so one such individual, Antipas, was killed because of his faithful witness. So this individual, Antipas, rejected anything, any type of worship that was related to something other than the worship of Christ. Maybe he rejected food sacrificed to idols. Maybe he rejected some sort of perverse sexual activity or sexual immorality. Maybe he was so bold as Stephen to speak out against the perverse culture or nature of what was happening, and they killed him for it. Regardless of the fact, the church was being persecuted because of their, their lack of participation and their denial of these types of activities. So how can this relate to the modern church and, the culture, and our culture and our environment? Now, this is sort of the application here. On one hand we could be in danger of taking this passage and treating it too loosely. Where participation in anything governmental, cultural, or societal becomes a faithless act supporting the throne of Satan. And what I mean by that is this. Is that if the government promotes it, or if a a group, some sort of secular group in our country or in the world promotes it, or advertises it, or suggests it, We cannot participate in it at all because it is not of Christ. Therefore, it must be evil. It must be of Satan. All right, that's what I mean loosely is that it just applies to everything loosely. All right, and we've got to be careful of that because we also know, for instance, that Paul talks about in Romans that even governments were put in place by God, even some of the evil ones. All right. We see that in Romans 13, that God ordains and is providential over all of these things. So we have to be careful about that. In this case, every government or non-evangelical group becomes an agent of Satan. And so you might quote or say this, Because I believe that the government or some other group is unwittingly or knowingly working on behalf of the Lord of the flies, I will not comply with blank. Maybe it's masks, the request to wear masks. I am not going to wear a mask because our government says so, and I believe the government is of Satan. Or I'm not going to take that vaccine because that's a ploy of Satan trying to get me to accept the mark of the beast. Or all these mandates are the first step in tribulation, in the tribulation. So go ahead and start the countdown. Now, why do I use that? Because it's in the news. It's right there in front of us. That's why I'm bringing this up. Now, I'm not saying that you should comply with every request that's made of the government. Some of them just right wouldn't be biblical for us to do. We could go down the list. Some of them are just not right for us to comply. But even though I'm going to say that, you know, asking us to wear masks, I don't believe that that's unreasonable. All right. 
I'm not saying that you must take a vaccine, even though I have. And I'm not saying that some of these mandates aren't out of bounds. I believe in the freedom of conscience, but we shouldn't use apocalyptic language to try to convince people not to comply. That's abusing Scripture. And what do I mean by that? There is a common thread right now. Now, I see it on social media because that's where we live right now, okay, where individuals in the church are saying, I'm not taking, I'm going to use the vaccine as an example, okay? And by the way, I'm not a, this huge pro-vaxxer. I'm not a huge anti-vaxxer. I'm neither one of those, okay? But here's what I will say, all right? I'm reading individuals saying I'm not taking the vaccine because it's the mark of the beast. Folks, I'm going to tell you, it's not the mark of the beast, okay? It's not. We will talk about what the mark of the beast is in a few weeks. That's not it, all right? It's, the mark of the beast is much deeper than that. It's much more uh, theological than that. But you kind of get where I'm at. If we say that everything other than the church is of Satan, then we're just going to start naming things off, and then there's no functioning at all, okay? There are things that our government provides that are good. In fact, I dare say that everyone sitting in this room right now benefits in one way or another from some type of service that our government provides us in some way, even if we don't want to admit it, okay? But there are those, those, things, those, those things that we have to be careful of. But at the same time, some could be confused of treating this passage too rigidly, where nothing governmental, cultural, or societal has a demonic root. And that would be dangerous too. For instance... The promotion of, of, sexual, of the sexual revolution by our society and our government, along with the celebration of abortion, is downright pagan. It just is. I mean, individuals on TikTok writing songs and dancing about their two or three abortions. They're celebrating it. Folks, that's demonic. That right there is an example of a satanic behavior. I've read some of these pro-abortion, not pro-choice, but pro-abortion articles. And it's as if you, have lived, you haven't lived until you have aborted two to three children in the name of progress. Now that sounds like hyperbole. It's not. I have read these articles where these individuals actually attack women for having children. For having children. How crazy is our culture where having a child is considered to be a bad thing? A dear friend of ours just had their son this past week. We just found out. We got a, we got a text message. I think it was on Wednesday night during Bible study. We, got this, we had Bible study. All of a sudden we get this text message of this beautiful baby boy that was born. And we're sitting there, and we're just celebrating it. We're just so happy. We're texting back and forth. And I want to go see the child, but I've got a cold, and I don't want anybody thinking I got the plague. And so I'm not going to go in there and see the baby yet. We're going to wait a couple weeks. But I really want to see this child. I want to celebrate with the parents. But there is a niche in our culture that is growing that would condemn the birth of this child because the mother did not choose progress and feminist ideology over a miracle of God. That is depraved. That is depraved. The celebration and the normalization of sexual immorality is not a fruit of the Spirit, but a seed of Satan. And that will happen if we don't take these warnings too rigid, uh, rigidly. We've got to understand that these things are happening. And they're happening in our churches. Maybe not ours. But if we continue to grow and thrive, the culture will want to seep in. And we have to protect the sanctity of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. And there are ways of doing that, and we're going to talk about the church needs to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Not everything is, not everything is a demonic nail, all right, and where we're the hammer, okay? Not everything is that. But there are more nails than we'd like to believe. And we've got to hammer them out. Now, that sounds violent. That's not what I mean. 
okay? Let's move on to the second point, the teachings of Balaam. Now, John writes in Revelation 2, 14 through 15, but I have a few things against you. So he commends them for not failing to follow Christ. But then he says, I have some things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The church at Pergamum was faithful for the most part, but there were some who were flirting with disaster. Now, if you are not familiar with this whole Balaam and Balak thing, let me just remind you, okay? Because it's actually a pretty interesting story. All right, for those who are familiar, this was where we get into a talking donkey, okay? So Balak is the king of the Moabites at this time, and you can find this story in Numbers 22. All right, so the Israelites are kind of roaming. This is in the first five books of the Bible. They're kind of roaming around in the wilderness. They're, they're wandering, if you will, and they have conquered some of the nations by the power of God. And then all of a sudden, the Moabites are very scared because here comes this massive group of people that seem to have this, the sails of God behind them, the winds of God uh, blowing in their sails. And so here they come, and they are nervous. So what does the king of the Moabites do? He gets with... This guy named Balaam, Balaam, who is a Gentile seer, okay, S-E-E-R, or diviner, he practices divination, if you will. Now, we could talk about what divination means. Is it magic? Is it, is it some sort of an occult thing? In this case, all it means is, is that Balaam has a knack for cursing or blessing individuals. And Balak goes to Balaam and says, I need you to curse the Israelites so they will not come and defeat us, all right? And Balaam, there's a long story there we're not going to get into, but basically Balaam says, okay, and he starts traveling. Well, his donkey, he's riding his donkey, all right? Now, folks, I ain't getting on a donkey, but Balaam got on a donkey, and the donkey's traveling. Well, the donkey, what does he see? An angel of the Lord appears in front of this donkey, and folks, the donkey doesn't want to run into the angel that has a sword, Okay, so what does the donkey do? He tries to move. Balaam doesn't like that and slaps the donkey. So the donkey moves the other way. Balaam doesn't like that, slaps the donkey. Finally, in the end, after getting whipped a few times, what does the donkey do? Just lays down. I'd lay down too. Just lays down and Balaam is furious. But then his eyes are open. <laughs> and the angel, the Lord gives the words to the donkey and the donkey turns around and says, What's up, man? That's, by the way, the paraphrase, okay? But you get the idea, right? Like, why are you hitting me? I don't want to run into this angel with a sword. What ends up happening is this, is that God allows Balaam to speak, but instead of speaking curses, the only thing that Balaam can do is speak blessings upon Israel. So he goes, therefore, and speaks these blessings, these oracles upon Israel when Balak was expecting curses, and Balak is furious, and after the final oracle, Balak is like, just leave. Just, we're done. We're done with this. Now, what does that have to do with this passage? It's this. Balaam came to the, to the conclusion that me cursing these individuals is not going to get them to falter. What you're going to have to do, and this is not recorded. We're assuming that this is what happened here, and we see this in Numbers 25, that what you're going to have to do is put the behaviors of our people in front of them and let them fall. And that's exactly what happens. They entice the Israelites with food sacrificed to idols. They entice the Israelites with sexual immorality, where the Bible literally says that the Israelites hoard after Moabite, Moabite women, and they participated. That's what John is referring to in this passage is that the people of Pergamum were following the ways of Balaam, what he had mentioned, what he had uh, said, if you will. They were following those ways, and they were accepting foods sacrificed to idols in the city of Pergamum that had been sacrificed in these temples. They were now participating in these sexual, de these, this debaucherous, uh, sexual, perverse activities that were common in the city. What were they doing? They were synchronizing themselves to the sins of their culture. They were having a party. 
they were not they were no longer set apart they wanted to be like the culture we see here in pergamum that most of the church has been faithful to christ abstaining from worldly and demonic pleasures but there were those who chose to give in they rejected their walk with christ and they chose to participate like those israelites back in numbers they chose to participate in these sinful behaviors now how should we understand this for us well let's look at the solution real quick in order to understand the application so jesus simply says repent jesus uh, john writes in revelation 2 16 therefore repent if not i will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth now like I said, while most of these individuals were following faithfully, there were a few bad apples that were just committing horrendous deeds. Horrendous deeds. It's as if we're here worshiping, and then some of you, after worship, decided to go just, and I'm not even going to describe acts, okay? But you all just decided to go behave like the most hedonistic individuals in our society it's like you forgot everything that we read sang about and preached about and you decided to do the exact opposite that's what was happening in this church at pergamum and these few bad apples were leading to the church's destruction this idea that jesus is going to war against them with the sword of my mouth which is what's described here means that jesus has the ability to both bless and curse you see Balak thought that Balaam had the ability to both bless and curse, but God was actually in control there. And so the only thing that Balaam could do was what God allowed him to do. But Jesus here, being the Son of God, he can bless and curse. And he will condemn those who falter. This should cause us pause. Because throughout church history, and especially in our modern day, we have too many examples of churches tolerating pervasive sin and perverse sin in a few members of the community, and it leads to their demise. We're seeing this right now in our churches. It's in the news. Sometimes it actually makes the national news. But if not, it makes the religious circle news. And sometimes, I'm just going to tell you, there are times where I'm like, man, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. We're, trying to, we're saying that we are trying to be separate than the world. But then there are those in our ranks that are going off. And they look no different, sometimes worse than the culture that we are trying to reject. That's what was happening in Pergamum. They were tolerating these behaviors. That's why Christ was judging them in this way, criticizing them in this way. You have these individuals in your midst that are doing all these things. You're not doing anything about it. You need to repent. You need to hold them accountable. Why don't we? Is it because we don't want to be seen as too judgmental? Well, I don't want to judge. I mean, that's, that's what we say. That's what we have been saying and saying. We don't want to be looked at as judgmental people. Or, we don't want to... That's their business. That's their business. What happens in their home, that's, that's their business. Folks, I'm just going to tell you, you may not like this. That is not biblical. That is not biblical. When you are a member, uh, and when I don't, I don't mean name on a roll, but when you are a faith member of the body of Christ, all right, you are a family member, not just in name. You are a family member sealed by the blood of Christ. If you all have sin and struggle in your home life, it is the responsibility of the church to step in and assist. It just is. 
That's the way it happened in the New Testament. That's what was providentially ordained. It's not a matter of, well, we got to keep our stuff secret. If the goal is to remain faithful in Christ and to pursue Christ, we should welcome brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside us and, and, and help us straighten out when we go crooked. I'm going to tell you, it is not an easy thing for us to, and I will use this phrase, air our struggles out with other individuals, even those close to us. And in case anybody's curious, I've done this where I have called individuals and say, I am struggling here. I need your help. I either need prayer or I need your, I need your advice. Paul can tell you that I have texted him specifically and said, Paul, I need your help here. Melvin could tell you that I have called and talked to Melvin multiple times. Just about things. Now, these aren't like massive upending the world, but these are things that I want to make sure are under control. I want to make sure that I am doing the right thing. And when I say the right thing, I mean the biblical thing. I want Paul in my business. I want that. I need other Christian men and women to know what's going on in my life to help hold me accountable. But we don't like that. We don't like that because we are living in a society where we keep everything secret. We don't want anybody in our business. We've, as a church, we've got to get out of that mode. That's not the picture of the church in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, they shared everything. Everything was on the table. And there was no shame in it. Churches are not called to proceed, though, with moral witch hunts. That's important. Aiming to ouster every individual with public sin. The goal of this is not to say, well, we need to go with a, with a, with a fine-tooth comb, with a magnifying glass, and look at everybody's life, and where there is sin, we're going to pick it apart. We're just going to pick it apart, right? And we're going to bring it in front of the church. And That's not what we mean either. What, mean, what we mean by this is that we have relationships with one another where we can help one another and serve one another and, if need be, call one another out. Call one another out. Refusing to address ongoing sin in churches has led to spouses feeling forced to stay with a privately abusive spouse because the offender had the public support of the church. Now that sounds outrageous, but that is happening right now. And the most common, I'll use the most common scenario, that a wife feels like she has to stay with an abusive husband because the husband has the support of the church. And the church even knows about the behavior, but they, that's not their business. That's not their business. And so the wife is left alone. And we may say in ignorance, well, she should just leave him. Folks, it is not that easy. It's just not that easy just to pick up and leave. Cowardice and failure to act has led to sexual immorality among leaders, false teaching from the pulpit, and other behaviors that defame the name of Christ. Right now, the Southern Baptist Convention is going through a massive ordeal because a few churches have chosen not to speak up when there was sexual abuse in, the mid, in their midst. They chose to sweep it under the rug. And you may say, with those silly Southern Baptist churches, let's just join another denomination not just us folks 
Well, let's just become non-denominational. It's not about the denomination. It's about the behavior and the attitude of, towards sin in the local church. And it begins with relationships. Pergamum was tolerating sin. And it was leading to their demise. But, how do we avoid these things? How can we avoid these things so that we don't have to go on these moral witch hunts? We can protect men and women in the church from sin, either this, what we would call mundane, even though no transgression against the Lord is mundane, or these drastic abuses that defame the name of Christ. Well, here are six things. Number one, teach truth. It begins with teaching truth. Often churches who entertain ongoing sin, unrepentant sin in members' lives, simply fail to preach the truth of the Bible. They fail to prioritize preaching sin. If the pastor or the leader in a church, if the church never hears about how devastating sin is, if all they hear are puppy dogs, flowers, and cupcakes from the pulpit or from the Bible study rooms, then the church is never going to take sin seriously. One very popular, I'm going to call him a self-help guru, I will not call him a preacher, refuses to talk about sin on Sunday morning because his people hear about sin or deal with sin all week long. That's why preachers and teachers must talk about sin because the culture will just brush it under the rug. But we've got to call sin out for what it is. It is treason against a holy God. And we've got to name that. Not to go on moral witch hunts, but so that our people can identify sin and stamp it out in their lives. I don't believe if I asked, I'm not doing this, but if I asked a poll in here, I don't think there's anybody in here that would say, you know what? I want to stamp out sin, but there's a few sins in my life. I'd just like to keep those. I got this fanny pack from the 80s. I'm going to stuff that sin right there in that fanny pack. I'm going to keep it. Everybody in here would be like, stamp the sin out of our lives. You will not find the joy that you are searching for until you are busy killing every sin. It won't be completely gone until glory. But that doesn't mean we have to wait until glory to start killing sin. We have to teach these truths even when they're difficult. Second, we've got to model Christ. There are some churches, Christy and I are listening, about, listening to a podcast right now about a church whose teaching, for the most part, was fantastic. They had tremendous theology, great theology. The problem was that the leaders weren't modeling Christ. They weren't modeling Christ. And the leaders not modeling Christ led to some in the church not modeling Christ. We need to model Christ. We cannot be wishy-washy about our sin. It's not unremarkable to see a church that is walking in sin when the pastor or the leader in the church is also walking in sin. It's not an unremarkable thing. In fact, you'd think, well, that just makes sense. Because if the preacher or teacher doesn't take sin seriously in his life, why should you all? I mean, he's the quote-unquote authority, right? We need to model Christ in our lives. Because if the shepherd walks off a cliff, the sheep often follow. And just so you know, this isn't just about pastors. If you're a parent, if you're a parent or you're a grandparent, you are shepherding in your home. And your children are your sheep. 
and they are watching you. If you don't take sin seriously in your home, how are your kids going to take sin seriously? That doesn't mean they're always going to be behaving, all right? But they know the difference between sin and holiness, right? They know the difference. That doesn't mean they're going to be perfect, but they know the difference. If you don't take worship seriously, how are they going to take worship seriously? Not every child or grandchild ends up in the church just because the parents lived their entire life in the church. Okay, that just doesn't happen. We'd love for it to happen, you know, we'd love for that to happen, but that's not the case. Not every kid ends up in church. But I'm going to tell you this, they are far more likely to end up church, up in church than if you as a parent or grandparent reject church. Now you all are here right now, you all are here, but you get the idea. I'm going to move quickly through these others. One, or number three, practice biblical membership. Make sure that members know what the church believes before they invest their lives. Make sure that they know that it's a commitment to, family, to, to a family of believers and not just a social club. Make sure that they know and believe in the expectations of a church. If you are a church member, there are expectations. You have expectations of the church, and we have expectations of you. One of them is that you're regenerate. It's amazing how many churches will sign somebody up for membership like they're signing them up for a Sam's Club card. It's just a sign it up. Here's your credit card. Make sure you pay the monthly toll. But they're not even believers. And as I've said many times, how do we expect unbelievers to behave like Christ? They're not believers. So make sure that we have regenerate membership, which leads to practicing church discipline. We need to be practicing church discipline. Now, that sounds really scary, and most churches don't do it because it sounds like, well, every time we practice church discipline, we're going to be bringing people up on stage and excommunicating them from the church. Folks, that's not the majority of church discipline. Here's what church discipline looks, most, looks like most of the time. Hey, man, I see you're struggling, man. I, I, I see it on Facebook. I hear it in some of the conversations that you have. I see that you're struggling, that there's, there's something. Can we just go to lunch sometime and just, ch- just talk? Just talk. Now, none of you all are going to accept my invite to lunch now, but okay. Anyway, but you get the idea, all right? Let's just go, let's go grab lunch, all right? Let's just chat. And you, and, you, and you just sit there and talk and say, man, you know, how do we get this straightened out? And oftentimes they do. They just needed help straightening it out. And then sometimes it requires them to be removed from membership and being removed from the Lord's table. Sometimes removing somebody from the fellowship of Christ, from the local church, is the most loving thing that you can do. Because oftentimes, statistically, when you do that, they don't reject the church. They still come. They see their sin, and they repent, and then the church reconciles them right back into membership. That is a wonderful testimony, and I would even say a very gospel-centered way of behaving in the church. So practice church discipline. Aim for reconciliation, number five. To Christ first, then to the body, and finally get involved. All right, get involved. How do we avoid these pitfalls? Get involved in one another's lives. I don't mean that I want to go around and see your finances. I don't, want to, I don't know what my finances are, to my wife's chagrin, okay? But, and so I don't want to see yours. What I mean is just get involved with one another's lives. Go to lunch. Go fishing. Go shopping. Hang out at one another's houses. I love going to Christy's house on Wednesday nights for Bible study. You know why? I love it because when we come to church and have Bible study, I get up here and I teach, and as soon as I pray, what do we do? We exit, right? But when we go to Christie's house, first of all, before things begin, we're sitting there chatting and jawing and all these kinds of things, just a great grand old time. And then after we're done, we're there another 20 or 30 minutes still talking. Now, she might be wanting to bite our heads off for that, you know, but we're doing it. I mean, we're building relationships because that's what a church family is. I have no interest in being in charge of a social club. I have none. That's boring. 
But I love the idea of leading the body of Christ, a family that's involved with one another's lives. Failing to deal with sin in the church is not only a disaster for the individual, but it's also disastrous for the whole church. Now, the last point, and we're going to move quick. Manna and stones. John finishes up, he says this. This is his sort of solution. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, just briefly, what is this deal with manna and stones? Honestly, commentators, experts in this area, are not 100% sure. They're not 100% sure exactly what's going on here. The manna, obviously, we know of that from when the Israelites were in the wilderness. The Lord provided this stuff, if you will. It fell from heaven, and it allowed them to be sustained, all right? And so we believe that that's an eschatological symbol. It's an end-time symbol that represents the fact that those who conquer, those who endure, those who persevere will be sustained by the bread of life. Not just this bread from, he- uh, from heaven, but will be sustained by Christ. If you persevere, if you continue to ward off and fight off sin, to kill sin, and to help one another beat back sin, and you trust in Christ and follow Christ faithfully, those who endure will get to have this hidden manna. What does that mean? You will have Jesus. And this white stone that we have, there are many different explanations to what this white stone is, but the most common one is this, is that it was often a representative or representation of someone being acquitted of charges. And so if you endure, if you persevere, you will receive a stone that demonstrates that you have been acquitted of all charges, and there will be a new name on that known only to you in Christ. It is a symbol of the fact of your of the truth that you have a relationship with christ the one who holds up the world that's what he's saying he's saying listen if you endure you get jesus if that isn't if that isn't a carrot in front of the horse right there let us endure let us persevere together for those who repent and cling to christ they will find redemption, and eternal life. Continually throughout Scripture, we see that holiness matters. I have said this time and time again. Holiness matters. How we live our life matters. The language that we use matters. The language we use matters. How we deal with our children, our grandchildren, our neighbor matters, doesn't it? Holiness matters. Holiness means being set apart for Christ. A concern for holiness is not legalism when it's to follow and model Christ. Holiness only becomes legalistic when we are more concerned with how others view us. So if I am only trying to be holy so that Paul and Jody think, man, he's a well-behaved Christian, that's not holiness, that's moralism. And there are a lot of moral people that will end up in hell. Holiness is all about Christ. Christ came to save sinners by bearing the cross in our place. But that wasn't all that he did. He embodied holiness. He taught us how to live, how to love, how to forgive. He taught us how to be kind to those who were vastly different than us. He taught us how to be angry without sinning. He taught us how to fight temptation. He taught us the meaning of holiness. If you want to see what holiness is, look at Christ. Look at Christ. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. If Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I can no longer live in sin, but must arouse myself to love and serve Him who has redeemed me. I cannot trifle with the evil that killed my best friend, meaning Jesus. I must be holy for His sake. How can I live in sin when He has died to save me from it? 
And I ask you the same thing. How can we go on living in sin even though Christ has died to save us from that sin? I mean, how is it possible? And I will say to us as a church, how can we, as the body of Christ, tolerate sin without confronting it if we say that our main mission is to preach and teach the gospel so that others might know the love of Christ? How can we do that? How can we tolerate sin in our midst? So we lovingly, we lovingly, but committedly, Hold one another accountable for sin. And it is a beautiful thing to see that happen. And it does not destroy churches. It does not destroy relationships. It can be uncomfortable at times. But it's the failure of, it's the failure of living in discomfort from time to time that has led to this situation that we're in. Christ died so that we'd be free from the pangs of sin, not to continue to live in it. So let us help one another live lives that honor and model Christ so that we too might receive this hidden manna and this stone with a new name. May that be said of us. May we be that kind of church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, for this day. Father, help us see sin for what it is. Help us see the depths of our own sin and help us to see sin in our, in our midst so that we can lovingly help one another kill that sin. Father, we thank you so much for your love and your compassion towards us, your kindness towards us. And we ask you to bless us now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.